Hello, Nathan Foster here. Welcome once again to the Renovare Weekly Podcast. A few weeks back, I was speaking at an event with my dad and Chris Hall in Pennsylvania, the Ordinary Saints Gathering. We had a really fantastic time. Um, and in that, Chris gave a talk on the Trinity and how spiritual formation is deeply rooted in the Trinity. He paints just this um, really fantastic picture of what life can be like here now and beyond. So I want to run that talk for you and give you a chance to listen to it. I've heard him give this talk a few times now, and and each time I'm picking up uh, really helpful pieces in it. As always, thank you so much for listening, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Spiritual formation is intensely, intensely relational. Intensely relational because of the wonder and beauty of God who is in God's own being intensely, infinitely, wondrously relational. So that's what we're going to explore for a few minutes today and draw some implications for spiritual formation. Now, as we do so, I wanted to remind you of what Nathan was saying last night. Do you remember what he was saying about the narratives that we have about God? And these narratives, some of us, if we've had the opportunity to grow up in a healthy home environment, have received uh, loving teaching and so on, when we think about the narratives of God that have guided our lives, we smile. In my group, uh, my small group last night, the narratives I heard about God, including my early narrative about God, are somewhat different. So what I wanted to begin with today is, is to share with you the four top distorted or dysfunctional narratives about God that I learned from Eastern students over the past 24 years. Many of whom are here. Some have come up to me and said, Dr. Hall, do you remember me? I was in your class 15 years ago. Made me smile. Made me smile. I'm not sure these narratives make anybody smile. But I think it's important for us to take a good look at them. And then we'll get into something much more wondrous and beautiful. Here's the number one narrative about God that simply, it seems to me, horrifies people, and rightly so. God with a voice like this. Honey, you know I love you, honey. I love you. I've given you so much, honey. But honey, I don't understand why you're not doing better. Why aren't you doing better when I've given you so much? Honey, I, I've come to expect a little bit from you. Why is it that when I send you to the best schools in the world, you come home and there's C's when I really expect A's, honey? I love you, you know that. Why aren't you doing better, boy? It's a Norman Bates God. And we know what Norman did to that voice. 
That's the number one. I love you. Why aren't you doing better? It's frightening, isn't it? Sometimes I've actually done that. I'm just acting. But I've done that with groups and people start crying because it intersects so closely with their experience. Here's the number two. God is a divine drill instructor with a voice that sounds like this. Wake up! Stand at attention when I'm talking to you. Yeah! I love you. But we got a lot of work to do, and we got a short period of time in which to do it. So listen up. Stand up straight. I can't hear you. Nobody gets tired around here. Nobody gets tired. Well, that's sort of somebody you'd want to give a hug. But people hear these voices, oftentimes because of the family they've grown up in, or the speaking or preaching to which they've been exposed. And it seems like everybody's doing a lot of yelling. Lots of it. And it troubles people. It troubles God's image bearers. Here's number three. This came home to me when my oldest son, who's living on the other side of the earth in Taiwan, in high school in his senior year, he walked down the stairs. He would rarely uh, show particularly tears at that time in his life. And he came downstairs, and his eyes were a little bit watery and red. It was 10.30 at night. And he came, and he sat next to me on the couch. And in a very serious voice, he said, Dad, Dad, where was God at Auschwitz? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. And so we talked. Behind the question was this. What's God like? What's God like? Dad, can I trust God? I'm learning things about the world as it is I never knew about. I never knew there were 17,000 people a day going up in smoke. Jewish people. Dad, the, the first half of the Bible, three quarters of it, a Jewish text. Dad, what's God like? Can I trust God? Is God a sadist? What's God like? And then number four, C.S. Lewis talks about this one a little bit. A grandfather figure, an indulgent grandfather figure who's watching his image bearers act horrifically day after day and smiles and says, Oh my goodness, look at them. They will be rascals. Whose fondest hope, as Lewis says, is at the end of a day, everybody's had a good time. God's not like that. So the question then is, and it's the, I think it's the most important question that we can ever ask. What's God like? And Jesus has answered it very clearly. 
Do you remember, now I'm in John 14. If you have a Bible, you might turn there. In John 14, Jesus is talking with the disciples, and the disciples are terribly confused, and they're frightened because Jesus is talking about going away. He's talking about preparing a place for them. He's talking about being the way, the truth, and the life. They're confused because messiahs don't go away. Messiahs stay. The anointed one of Israel is supposed to stay. He's leaving. They're frightened. And he says this finally to them. He says, if you really knew me, you would know my father as well. From now on, you know him. And have seen him. You know him and have seen him. So Jesus is quite explicitly saying, if you look at me, you'll see the Father. If you look at me, you'll see what God is like. And then what gets ever more interesting from John 14 through John 17 is that Jesus will speak of his Father, speak of being sent by his Father, inviting us to look at him and to see the Father who has sent him. And then you get into the latter part of John 14 and into John 15 and 16, Jesus starts talking about the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Spirit of Truth, whom he will send or whom the Father will send or give to us. And suddenly, the one God of Israel... And there is only one God. The one God of Israel turns out to be much more beautiful and complex than we would have ever thought. Because Jesus is addressing his Father and clearly considers the Father to be separate from him and yet says in John's Gospel, I and the Father are one. And then he talks about going away, but sending the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've done and said for you. So we have three, but only one. So in this strange kind of Trinitarian arithmetic, we have one plus one plus one equals one. I had the privilege of being in an evangelical Mormon dialogue for a number of years and got to go to BYU at least three times, got to interact with Mormon theologians and philosophers and uh, Bible scholars and so on. And a dear friend of mine who was dean of religious studies at Brigham Young said this both in print and to me in a very gentle way. He said, Chris, I have to ask, and I'm asking as gentle as possible. If I were to set a table setting for God, how many people would be at the table setting? In, in Bob's mathematics, one plus one plus one equals three. Three. So in Mormon theology, Mormons explicitly reject the idea or concept or doctrine of the Trinity. So, we have the biblical text, Jesus' testimony about the wonder of God, and so we move into a, a, just about a hundred years 
further, maybe 150 years further, and we have these ancient Christians reading these texts in community and contemplating and praying and worshiping, and a model of God is offered to us through their minds and their hearts and their mouths, and it's the model of God as Trinity. So Richard was mentioning a bit earlier, Augustine, other names, Chrysostom, Athanasius, Basil the Great. Behind Basil the Great, his sister Macrina, who he said was the best theologian in the family. All of them looking at the biblical testimony, looking at the practice of the church. We were just singing holy, 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 were we not? And what we were affirming together is God is one, and yet in a way that's incomprehensible, indescribable, God is also three. And we hit our knees in worship. So for just a moment, think with me back to a time when there was no time. Back to a time before the universe had been created, before there were atoms, before there were planets and galaxies, before there were butterflies and pigeons and dinosaurs, before there were image bearers, before there was anything. Anything. Before there was time. I was talking to an Oxford physicist any number of years ago and asked, is time a predicate of the created order? And he said, yes, indeed. So time is the water that God has created, if I can put it this way, created for image bearers to swim in. So we think, for example, progressively. We think from point A to point B, point B to point C. We know what a beginning is, and we know what an ending is. We know what uh, birth is and what death is. We know all of these things because we live in time. God created time for us. My central point would be this. Before there was time, space, universe, light, speed of light, any of these things, and I have to use the word exist, it's a time word, God was existing, not as an isolated stone pillar of some kind. God was existing always, always, always in an unfathomable relationship of love. Now, I said that very carefully. A relationship of love with no beginning. Hard to wrap your mind around, isn't it? No beginning. No beginning. And no ending. Always, always, the Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father, the Father loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the, uh, the Son and the Father, a wondrous, incomprehensible union and communion of inexpressible, in terms of human terms, inexpressible love that we cannot comprehend because we're creatures, we're image bearers. We can move into it, and we will be forever and ever, 
But before there was anything, at the heart and core of reality was relational love. See, I think this is one of the reasons why when we experience love, when we experience love between a wife and a husband, parents and children, grandparents, we know there's nothing better than this. There's nothing better than this. I want to drink this water forever. We know it's more real than the wood I'm tapping on that podium. And we know this because we're image bearers. Because God has created us in God's image. We reflect in some very small way, but a wondrous way, we reflect, reflect this much greater love that's always been there. How to put it? Radiating. Beaming. Out through now every aspect of the created order. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. God is not like those distorted, dysfunctional views of God that I related earlier. God is a wonder and beauty and glory who is constantly inviting his image bearers to come home. So we go to Genesis. And in Genesis... Chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, you have these wondrous stories of creation. In Genesis chapter 1 and in chapter 1, verse 26, God speaks, let us make human beings in our image. And then that wondrous picture that Nate mentioned last night in Genesis chapter 2, remember that? When God takes clay and molds clay and shapes clay and breathes in to this clay, and an image-bearer emerges. And God looks at this image-bearer, and God looks at all the created uh, order, the farthest point of the universe where God is as fully present as God is present with us here today at Good Samaritan. And God looks at these image-bearers coming to, into existence, male and female, and he says, "This is; these are... These are very, very good. They bear my image in a manner that no other form of created life does. And then the story implodes. And the story implodes when that original couple, Adam, Eve, turn. Remember how I mentioned bent earlier? They turn in on themselves away from God. A voice addresses them, Genesis 3, a voice addresses them questioning whether God can be trusted or not. You ever wonder about that? I do. Can God be trusted or not? So let me paraphrase. So a serpent appears, a talking serpent of all things, and says, Oh, Eve, 
Oh, Eve, has God said that you cannot eat from the trees in the garden? Oh, Eve, let me tell you why. God knows that in the day that you eat of this tree, you'll have knowledge just like God's knowledge. He's hiding something from you. How could you possibly, how could you possibly trust somebody like that? No, 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 no. Trust me. Trust yourself. Go have a bite. And when, when Adam eats first, and then Eve, their natures crack as image bearers. Both Augustine and Martin Luther later use a, a really good Latin phrase. I've taught all my students this one. It's a good one to remember. Adam, Eve, you, me, in Latin, are incurvatus in se. Incurvatus in se. Can you hear the curve there? We're incurvatus in se. We're curved in on ourselves away from God. That is a stance and a crack in human nature that was never, ever meant to occur. We're bent. Bent. Every time I commit an act of sin, whether it be in my mind or with my body, every time I commit an act or sin, it's a bent creature saying to God, I know better. I know better. And behind that, let me tell you really who is king. Let me tell you who is queen. Me. Bent creatures. We just mentioned Auschwitz. Think of the horrors cracked image bearers have committed just in the 20th century and in the early 21st century. It is though we have lost our minds. And sometimes the greatest horrors committed in pursuit of a truth that we hold up to the world and say, everyone should believe this. And there's always a lie encompassed in that imaginary truth. And we can trace every one of those lies where the result is immense human suffering right back to this original story where this voice says, trust yourselves. Don't trust him. He'll hurt you. He can't be trusted. He's not good. He's not loving. Trust me, really. No, no, no. So, at that point in the story, then, what God must do, this wondrous God, who never, ever wavers in love, God acts on our behalf. Initially, through the history of Israel. And then there comes a point in time when all the prophetic messages from folks like, from Amos to Isaiah to Jeremiah, I think Jeremiah 17, 
just in terms of trees planted by streams of water and so on. All the prophetic voices are fulfilled and at a given point in time. I don't know how God pulled this off. But at a given point in time, the sun, the sun comes and joins the divinity of the sun to the human nature offered in the womb of the Virgin Mary. At a certain point in time, at a certain place in time, Mary responds in faith and trust, here I am, may it be as you said. And then at a certain time, cells began replicating in her womb. But these are unlike any other cells that have ever existed. God, in the person of the Son, is joining himself to human nature. And in that movement of infinite, incomprehensible love, human nature will be restored. Human nature will be recreated, giving us the opportunity as bent image bearers to be made new. It's like God has dressed himself in us. So, as the, as the church fathers think about this, some of these ancients I just mentioned a little while ago, this is the kind of language they use. There's a baby born, unlike any other baby who's ever existed, and it's lying there next to his mother, occasionally needs his diapers changed, needs human milk to be nourished, will grow, as Luke puts it, will grow in wisdom and knowledge and stature, will grow from being a little, I don't know, how much do you think he weighed? little six or seven pound baby to a young five-year-old to a ten-year-old to someone who around the age of 11 and 12 has so grown in his knowledge of God that when he's in the temple in Jerusalem, the teachers of Israel are amazed. And yet every once in a while, if he'd been living in my time, every once in a while he just wants to play basketball. But they would say, while he's in the cradle, wiggling, needing to be nourished by his mother, he is reigning over the entire universe simultaneously. So he grows in knowledge who knows all things. It's enough to make you think, isn't it? This is their language. He grows in knowledge who knows all things. He, re he receives life who is the source of all life. He dies who cannot die. He is, Jesus is, the great image bearer. How do I know that? Paul writes about it. So this is Colossians chapter 1. 
verse 15 and following, Paul, in writing of Jesus, says, He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the image bearer. And guess what? He looks at us and he says, I can teach you how to be a real human being. I can teach you how to be a real human being. I can move into your life. I can embrace you and form you and shape you and grow you and for parts of your cracked nature kill you so that you can come to life in me and over time takes a long time over time be increasingly like me and as you are more and more like me you'll be more and more like my father you'll be more and more like the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth you'll be ever more human as you become ever more like God. That's why Paul can say these extravagant things. They're just extravagant. Think of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says to the Ephesian community, be imitators of, do you remember? Be imitators of God. Peter, another one of the great apostles, is writing about these wonders. And he says, because of God's glory and goodness, we can actually participate, Peter writes, Second Peter, in the divine nature. We're wired for God. It's God's image bearers. So this is in some way why an image bearer gone wrong is a horror and capable of such evil. An image bearer gone right through the power of the Spirit that one life can work wonders and beauties that will take your breath away. Now I'm looking at you. I'm looking at each person here. I'm just looking around. You are God's image bearer. You will never be separated from God. And the future that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit hold out to us is unimaginably wonderful. So Dallas said, among other things, Dallas said, when we die, we probably won't know that we're dead. You know, we can spend a lifetime worrying about the moment of our death. In all likelihood, we won't even know that we've died other than 
what's been blurring our vision, what's been causing us to walk with a limp is gone, and suddenly we're seeing something that we've longed to see. We're hearing something that we've longed to hear. It's the music, it's the symphony that we've always wanted to hear. We've heard notes in the midst of this present evil age, but the symphony starts. Gregory of Nyssa, the brother of Basil the Great, said, A, we are finite beings. B, God is infinite by nature. C, hence in the age to come, we will never have our thirst slaked, satisfied, because it's like we're swimming, swimming as little finite creatures, swimming in an ocean of infinite beauty, wonder, goodness, love. We will never tire of it. And then God recreates the earth. God recreates the heavens. Everything made new. Augustine would think about these kinds of things. And to paraphrase, I've shared this once or twice with the rest of our team, to, to paraphrase it's something like this. The future. Oh. No, I've, I've died. I'm stepping into the, this future fully. Oh. Oh. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, oh, my. Oh, oh. And these great voices, oh, yes. Yes, yes, my son. Yes, yes, my daughter. Oh, mm-mm-mm-mm. Lord, I think, I think this is going to take 10,000 years to get, just keep drinking. And the Lord says, oh, you have all the time necessary. You will always be with me. You are my image bearer. And the image we bear, do you remember how I began to, with the idea that spiritual formation is intensely relational? Can you see why? If we're image bearers who bear the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who've always, without beginning or end, in a timeless exchange, that doesn't make sense, it does it, a timeless exchange of love, create creatures who can be in relationship with that wonder, that God, that glory. It should not surprise us. That spiritual formation, the formation of a cracked image bearer into the image of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made to, known to us in Christ. It should not surprise us then that we need one another. That we know that the highest and holiest goal of all human life is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why. Cyril of Alexandria. He was Archbishop of Alexandria in um, the 5th century. One of the great seas of the church. One of the great centers of the church. Cyril said this. He was, I'm not sure you'd want to have dinner with Cyril because he could be a little bit rough around the edges. But he, I think he got this right. He said, 
There is a communion that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share by nature, meaning just as God, before there are ever anything were anything. But then he said, yet there is a communion we share with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by adoption. We have been adopted into this wondrous communion that is at the heart and core of all reality. Oh, it just makes me want to jump up and down. And the great image bearer then, the great image bearer says to us, Yes, apart from me, you are more bent than you could ever imagine. By the power of my spirit, enter into relationship with me, and I will teach you how to live. And I will teach you by modeling for you certain practices that will really help. I'll teach you how to pray. I'll teach you how to fast. I'll teach you how to study. It's so, it's so interesting to me that the one who's teaching us learned Hebrew in synagogue while simultaneously knowing all human language that would ever come into existence. I'll teach you how to speak. I'll teach you how to act. I'll teach you how to have a, a sane, healthy sexual relationship with other image bearers, your wife. I'll teach you all these things. Prime example. And then Richard and I are to talk a little bit. Prime example. Luke chapter 5. Starting right around verse 15 and on into verse 16. So Luke is talking about how busy Jesus is. He's announced the arrival of the kingdom. He's healing people, teaching people, raising people from the dead. He is busy. No more important work ever in human history than this one. And Luke talks about this in verse 15. And then he drops in in verse 16, something that just catches the reader off guard. And in verse 16, he says, But Jesus would often withdraw to lonely places and pray. See what he did? So busy. The work so important. But he seems to be saying, For Jesus, who is not infected with the same disease that we have, Jesus found it necessary to habitually withdraw into silence and solitude and prayer so that he could do the work that his father was asking him to do. I can see Jesus in a crowd of people. There's people lying on the ground, voices calling out, Rabbi, Rabbi, my son, Rabbi, my daughter, heal, heal, Rabbi, Rabbi. And Jesus just walks away. He'll come back, but he walks away. And somehow, because of our own bent nature, because of our deep tendency towards self-deception, 
somehow we think I can live my life, carry on my ministry, but not follow some of these basic patterns that the Lord is holding out to us. So that 75% of all clergy, all pastors, priests, after five years in the ministry say, I want out. I'm exhausted. I'm burned out. And Jesus, with great love, says, well, son, well, daughter, you're tired because you're living in a way I never lived. And to be frank, darling, I had a more important work to accomplish. It's like we lose our minds. Isn't it true? We lose our minds. So what this conference is, is an invitation. It's an invitation to be an ordinary image bearer. But the wondrous thing is that in one sense, there are no ordinary image bearers. Because we are reflections of the great image bearer who says to us, come and watch. Come and listen. Come and rest. I will teach you. And then I'll let you move out into the world I've created for you. I'll give you a gift of years in which to, to live and reflect who I am. And then you're coming home. But if, when you come home, you're moving into a wonder and reality that will take your breath away. So this is a very special period of time living in this in-between time. It's the chance that we have as image bearers to reflect in a time of testing, as Nathan was saying, suffering, stretching, challenges to reflect our faith. That the end of the story has invaded the middle of the story. And as Dallas would put it, we're absolutely safe with work to be done lives to be lived, reflecting the practices and perspective of the great image bearer, Jesus.